Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Johnny Taylor, President and CEO of SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management, which is the association for over 300,000 human resource officers in 165 countries. I always say the formula for success in any business is to get your people capability right. That's how you're going to satisfy more customers. That's how you're going to make more money. And more importantly, that's how you can make a bigger difference in the world. That's why I'm really excited for you to hear from Johnny, because he has figured out a huge piece of the puzzle when it comes to getting your people right. And it's something a lot of us overlook. Empathy. Not sympathy, but empathy. The ability to see a situation from someone else's perspective and really respond with compassion. He says empathy isn't just a mushy feeling or moral idea. It's a business skill, something we actively need to be working toward in our organizations and developing in our leaders. And fortunately, he has a lot of practical advice for how we can do just that. So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with my new friend and soon to be yours, Johnny Taylor. Uh, Johnny, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join me in this conversation. Oh, thank you so much, David. And I, listen, I, I shared with you, it's a, it's a big deal to be able to spend time with you because all of the CEOs as of late, frankly, have jumped on the people bandwagon, but you've been doing this for a very long time. This is not new to you. And, you know, a long time ago when people were talking about financial capital, financial capital, you were talking about human capital. So thank you uh, for being ahead of your time and being a frontiersman on this work. Well, thank you very much, Johnny. You know, I, I know your organization pretty well. I've spoken to a couple of your big conventions. They're big. I mean, I yes. spoke to one in Orlando. Yeah, close to 15,000 people there. It's the biggest group I ever talked about. And I, I taught everybody the yum cheer. And yeah. it's the only time, Johnny, that uh, I've, I've, I've trended on Twitter, you know, so that was kind of cool. cool. But I want you, can you tell us about uh, the purpose of your organization, Sherm, and, and anything else that you think will put it in the proper context? Yeah. So Sherm, let me describe what it is for people who, who just need sort of an elevator pitch, right? We represent HR professionals across the globe. And what does that mean? If you were a lawyer, you'd be a member of the American Bar Association. If you were a physician, you'd be a member of the American Medical Association. So it's the professional association for people who do what we do, which is human resources. It includes HR practitioners. It includes lawyers, because, you know, there are a lot of lawyers who focus in people issues. It includes all sorts of benefits people and talent acquisition people, et cetera. But Anything related to people is what we do. We are the go-to organization for that. However, and most recently, and about three or four years ago, because of what you've been preaching for decades now, the idea that people are at the center of almost everything, especially when it comes to industry, we've broadened our remit a little bit so that even employees now come to us to say, you know, what should I expect from my employer? Uh, what is the right way for me to ask for this or that? So it's more than just representing HR professionals. We're representing work and everything that has to do with work. Well, you've really broadened that definition, and, and I want to get into that a little bit more later. But I, first of all, uh, the reason why I was so excited about doing this podcast is I just read your, 
excellent new book. It has it's chock full of insights. It's it's called Reset, uh, a leader's guide to to work in an age of upheaval. Uh, yes. What do you hope to accomplish with the book, Johnny? Yes, yeah, so I I hope that again, not just HR pr- practitioners or just CEOs, but that broadly we all read the book and say, okay, what's my reset moment? Why is that so important? David, I think you'd agree, and anyone listening to this would agree, that we all thought back in March of 2020, it feels like centuries ago now, right? But we thought this was a pause. We thought, you know, 14, 21 days, 30 days, the entire country and indeed the globe shuts down, and then we will be past this COVID-19 thing. None of us, you know, as time marched on, three months, six months, nine months, now 15 months later, thought that we'd be here still, frankly, in the middle of the pandemic in many ways. And so as opposed to a pause, this period of time to reflect, rethink, reset, was very different than what any of us expected. I'm hoping that what the book does is it says, here's a framework for for taking this, rethinking how you're going to operate in work going forward, either as an employee or an employer, a leader, a follower, whatever. That's the point is for it to give some thoughts, as you said, some real thoughts about how can, how will I be really different coming out of the pandemic? You know, I, uh, you're obviously a, a leader who really walks the walks the talk, and I want to get into how you lead and how you're resetting Sherm uh, mm-hmm. with a real live example of how to how to really perform in this crazy time. But first, let me let me take you back a little bit. Uh, tell us about your upbringing. Modest. That's the best way to describe it, right? And and I just had lunch with a colleague the other day and described why I think that makes me what I am, because I can relate, relate to everyone. I've been in the best of worlds. This was the uh, Charles Dickens story, the best of times, the worst of times. So I've lived it all. I was born in Fort Lauderdale, uh, one of three children to my parents. They ultimately were divorced, so raised by a single mom. Went off to college uh, because it was clear to me that education was going to be the great equalizer at the University of Miami, the U, for anyone watching out there, and then went on, uh, left Florida, where I was raised and did my undergraduate work, to law school, went to Iowa, of all places. So if I have any Midwesterners in there, thank you. You gave me an amazing foundation. And then spent my life on the corporate side. Even though I'm at SHRM now, which is a .org and a nonprofit, I spent most of my life in major corporations, Viacom, Paramount Pictures, Blockbuster Entertainment. Yes, there once was a Blockbuster. And as I've mentioned, Dave, something that you would know, I was in the food services business. In fact, I was general counsel for a company out of the UK called The Compass Group, the world's largest food services company. And uh, so I was general counsel there. I've had throughout my career opportunities as a chief lawyer, chief HR officer, and now CEO. So, Johnny, you were at Blockbuster, which was totally disrupted by Netflix. What did did you learn from that experience that sticks with you today? Uh, That if you don't change, you will die. And it's just that simple. In fact, I talk about Blockbuster a lot. You remember, and for anyone who's too young, maybe the millennials and particularly the Generation Z, we were everywhere. I mean, there was a Blockbuster store opening every 20 seconds, we used to brag, on the planet. There was not a corner you went to, and everyone made it a Blockbuster night. And it just became a part of life, right? And then almost overnight, I'm talking five to seven years, it went from Wall Street's darling and pure ubiquity from a brand uh, standpoint to nowhere 
to bankrupt, to like non-existent. And I saw that because we refused the whole idea of innovation within a business, uh, the idea of not listening to the next generation of customer internally or externally, it caught us up. And so, uh, you know, for people who think that companies can't go away, they do. And I lived through it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, that's a lesson that well, well worth remembering by everybody. And, and then you became CEO of Sherm in 2017. Yes. What did you do to get up to speed on, on the people and the challenges that you had at hand? Well, fortunately, I'd spent almost all of my career really focused on people-related issues, either as an HR person, as a lawyer. Um, and then I spent a period of time in my life working in colleges, right? In the college space, higher ed space. Because if you think about it, those are the very people who will ultimately become employees. So I had a really good understanding of how the, the talent machine from K through 12 to college and ultimately into the workforce. What I had to spend my time doing in the earliest part of my tenure here at Sherm was really rethinking our purpose. You know, a friend of mine who is now deceased, a name that you, you'd likely know, David Stern, was the commissioner of the NBA and had spent a lot of time with me. And I remembered when I joined Sherm, he called me up, cold call, right? And he said, so Taylor, I, I, I see you've joined this big organization. It's called Sherm. And he said, you know, tell me about it. And I rattled off at that time, we had 285,000 members in 150 countries. And I rattled off those sorts of stats. And he said something that will forever stick with me. He said, well, that's great. So you got a big club of HR people. And it was this pause. I was like, what? And he said, what does that mean to me as a business leader? Nothing. He said, the fact that you've got 285,000 HR people doesn't necessarily mean anything to me. What you've got to do is tell me why Sherm should matter to me. And with that, I came back to him. He said, I'll never forget, he ended, he said, how many people do you impact every day? So I don't know, 285,000 people. He said, wrong. That's not your number. Your number is the multiplier effect. How many people do those people impact every day in a workplace somewhere on the globe? That's your number. So I went back to my team and I said, what are the numbers? How many people, when you take our members and we go to each one of them and say, how many people do you oversee every day in your HR practice within your organization? We have 5,000 employees. We have 300 employees. We have 20 employees. Do the math and come back. He came back. Our research team said 115 million people go to work every day in an organization where there's a Sherm person working. And I said, wow, now that is our impact. So that really is what I early on. I had to get up to speed on why should Sherm matter to anyone other than HR people. And it was when I realized that people spend most of their time, the time that they're awake, at work. And so we have this huge opportunity to literally transform people's lives by providing a livelihood to them. And you can do all sorts of things with that sort of setting. And that's what we're doing right now. And it's what I learned early on is this job is more than growing my membership base by 3 or 4% a year. It's about impacting people's lives. You know, uh, Johnny, what was the culture you inherited and, and how are you shaping it to be even more powerful today? Yeah, so internally and externally. So let me start with externally. The external meaning our members, the culture was one of HR people talking to HR people about HR stuff. 
And and so imagine me coming in trying to say, but guys, that's great. There's a little bit of an echo chamber going on because we're talking to each other about the same stuff. How are we going to get people outside of our world to uh, validate us, to say that what we do matters and to, to show talk about impact? So that's a culture that was very, very much insular. That was number one, externally. Internally, it was one where we had a lot of pride, but it was stayed. Kind of, you know, 1% a year growth, nothing that you would accept in the food business or in any business that you'd run. Um, and, you know, people would come and they would go and we'd accept it a little kind of sleepy. And then all of a sudden, here I come, uh, Mr. Disruptive, and I pride myself on that. And it comes with, and I hope we get to talk about it, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for people who are going through the change with me. And frankly, leading through this is the most uncomfortable thing you've ever done. Because as much as people say they want change, they really don't. As much as people say they want transparency, they really don't. You know, is this that line from the movie, you really can't handle transparency? Well, that's true. And so this process was painful. The first two, two and a half years of it was absolutely painful externally and internally. But I'm pleased to say in about three, year three, we started to see the breakthrough. Well, maybe a, a, a lot of that, not maybe, I'm sure a lot of that is this importance that you seem to be put on having a challenge culture. Uh, yes. What do you specifically mean by that? And what are you doing at Sherm to make that happen so it comes alive in your organization? Right. Yeah. So, so I, my, my, Communications people hated when I called it the challenge culture because they were like, that's, that just doesn't feel right. I said, but that's what it is. Like, let's use real words that people can relate to. What do we mean by that? Uh, when your people naturally are pleasers, largely, right? And they typically respect hierarchy. So if Johnny says this is the direction that we're going in, by virtue of his position, he must be right. Uh, or Johnny's chiefs are, you know, they're the leaders, they say it. What we found is there were some really good ideas coming up from the bottom. You know, there's a grass top, what is it, rooftop, green top, treetop strategy, and there's a grass root strategy. And what we found is there were some great ideas. There were mistakes that we were making as an entity that, that our people at the bottom of the organization knew and would have helped us prevent, that we could have avoided those mistakes if they thought they could challenge things that we said. So this idea of a challenge culture was very much about giving people, creating a culture where people actually believed that we wanted them to challenge our ideas respectfully, with civility, all of those good things. But at the end of the day, you've got to give people the freedom, uh, the safety to actually challenge ideas. And that's what that's hard work because I got to make I got to tell my executive team, this is the way we're going to operate. It's okay for a person, no matter where they are within these ranks, to come in and say, I'm not so sure that's a good idea. And then you've got to take it and not just hear them, but you've actually got to embrace it and then let them start to see that some of the things, the positions that we held, we're willing to change if people. And then once you do that, over time, you create a culture where people believe challenge is not negative, it's positive, because ultimately the entire organization is better for it. You know, I, I never really liked the word culture, uh, Johnny. It sounded too much like a germ to me. You know, I, I define it as work environment and the behaviors that will get the best results. What's your definition of culture? Yeah, so I, I too, I've struggled with it because growing up as a lawyer, culture felt soft. I was like, well, what is that, right? <laughs> it's 
But I tell you, I, I've come up with a sort of working definition. It's how things get done around an organization. It's unique to every organization. I found that there's no perfect culture. There are no good cultures or bad. It's like families, right? Uh, there are illegal, immoral, unethical cultures. I got that part. Putting that aside, culture is how things really get done. Some of the rules are written. Some are unwritten. And it's incredibly important that you, in recruiting people, uh, that you describe your culture and describe the specific behaviors, to your point, that that sh uh, manifest what culture feels like. But if you ask me a short version of it's how things get done. I mean, that's how they work around here. You know, I, I really believe in purposeful recognition where you recognize the behaviors that you know get re great results. What, what are those behaviors at SHRM that you really think are critical? Right. Innovation. Um, and part very, very close to that. People from a behavioral standpoint who are willing to take risk and innovate, which means some things will fail, right? You think about Silicon Valley. You think about the private equity world. You got to, you know, kiss a lot of Prince Charmings to find that one, right? Your toads, rather, to go, right? So that's the way the process works. So from a behavioral uh, perspective, what we do is we like to see people who are willing to do things, some of which will fail. And then we've got to celebrate that failure as much as we do the success. As long as it's a well-executed failure, right? I don't want people who are failing just because they didn't take time to think through this stuff right, responsibly, and, you know, use our resources in a responsible manner. But you've got to celebrate failure. That's a behavior. And so when I look for people, one of the things we ask in interview processes, tell me when you failed at something. There is nothing that stops an interview faster with me when someone says, I don't think I've ever failed at anything. And I said, well, that means you're not going to, this won't be the culture for you because you'll come in and you'll constantly be the person who blocks innovation because you're afraid of failing. You've never had it. You don't want to have it. And so you're not going to do it, which is going to ultimately slow down the progress that we're trying to make in the organization. That's one thing. The other behavior that I'm really pushing and, and more and more now is we can't have rumors and backbiting and meetings after meetings, a lack of transparency with each other. I have found that organizations are struggling a lot because of the tensions internally. Employees, I just read something the other day, a specific example that'll make this point. So um, I guess the woman's the chief marketing officer at Netflix and a group of her employees on a Slack channel decided that they were going to complain about everything wrong with her leadership and the organization, right? Um, some of which may have been true, some of which may have been false, I don't know. But interestingly, Netflix, from a behavioral standpoint, fired those people. And they said, let me tell you what we do here. If you have something to say about someone, you say it to them. You don't talk behind their backs. We, do, we will not operate that way. That behavior has to be built into, designed, and you have to be intentional and enforced within an organization. Therefore, you don't have the organization competing within itself. You have people, we're, we're all just, now you spend more time, you know, worried about what people are saying about you. That's destructive and counterproductive. So I love those sorts of things. And I'm, I found that that has harmed a lot of organizations, this pettiness, this incivility, this rumor mill, like you've got to put a and into it. If you can't tell, I feel very passionate about it because I have learned that organizations lose a lot of their energy with infighting. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked about COVID a little bit earlier. How are you using the crisis of COVID-19 and now Delta to, to do organizational good at, at SHRM? What's your, what's your specific reset? 
Right. My specific reset has everything to do with, well, I, it's, I have to say two. One is flexibility, workplace flexibility, not to be confused with work from home, because I think that's a problem. We've sort of decided that this is all about work from home. Most people don't want to 100% work from home. They like interacting with other adults, right? They like the interactions of, of the human experience. But the idea that everyone doesn't have to work in the office nine to five, five days a week, that it could be three, two, it, three days in, two days out, it could be four, one, it could be whatever, that people, that we have to bring the true concept of work flexibility to life. That was a big reset moment for me. I'm a lawyer. I'm sort of conservative on these things, and this is the way work gets done. And now we have been forced during this process, this reset moment, to say, hmm, does it have to be done that way? David, I could tell you, if you had told me that my EA could work remotely effectively, my executive assistant, that is, effectively for me, I would have said there's no way. There's just no way. I need that person here. And I know you probably can relate as a chief executive. You're like, I need this person right here with me. It was amazing how, you know, two days a week, she could be quite effective for me working remotely. And that was a true reset moment for me in the biggest way. You know, every company has had to work virtually what have you learned at Sherman about how to keep remote workers truly engaged and, and productive? It's a big that challenge. Is, yeah, it's and that is my takeaway. It is incredibly hard. I'm not even sure that it's possible. So that might be a little provocative for you. Uh, there is there's a reason why we have the adage out of sight, out of mind. And the reality is if you have an employee who's fully remote and you have another employee who's next door to you every day and you're running into them in the coffee room, the water cooler, whatever, you go out to lunch, you are building relationships with that person that cannot be replicated with all of the HR interventions in the world. Sure, the person who's on, I can bring them in and I can make sure they show up on the Zoom screen and we can have touch spot, you know, touch-ins and we can do all of that stuff. But trying to replicate fully replicate the in-person human dynamic is not realistic, which is why I think those companies that have gone too far, you can work from wherever you want. You never have to come into the office. We don't have to see you, know you. I think over time, uh, they're going to see that there are major disadvantages to that. Now, can you make it better? Should there be true? Can you take two different work experiences, working remote and working in the office and try to make them more alike? Uh, it reduce the similarities? Sure. But one thing that I, and that's hard. That's going to be really hard. I just did a meeting and I'm sure you've seen it. I'm on boards, right? And you're at a meeting. The people who are joining the board meeting remotely do not have the same experience as the people who are there. And we are all equals, right? This is not hierarchy or anything. We're all independent board members, but the people in the room have a much different and I would argue more impactful interaction than the people who are remote. So can you do it periodically? Sure. But every day, if, there's, if you're going to compare remote to in-person, you're going to struggle over the long term. You know, what do you think are the biggest workplace innovations that have, have occurred because of COVID? Right. For us, and I'm going to name two. One, we have now found a way to recruit people, onboard people, like train people fully remotely. And I would have I would have told you two years ago that that just doesn't work. We actually now, and I want you to think about this, conventional thinking was you can't fire people remotely, right? You bring them in. 
We do all of that now remotely. And we've changed the norm. I can hire you, fire you. I can promote you, demote you. I can celebrate you. All of that remotely. To me, that is the biggest change. And in particular, the learning and development side of it. That now, asynchronously, people can upskill and reskill at any time remotely and quite cost-effectively now uh, than in any than something we've ever seen. People are learning now in their living rooms at three o'clock in the morning or at three o'clock in the afternoon. It is just amazing. So that entire way that we manage and develop and find talent has been transformed during this reset. You know, human resource, Johnny, as, as you well know, it's 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 a can be a really maligned function in a lot of organizations. You know, why does HR have such a bad reputation across so many organizations? Well, so HR in its earliest stages, we called it personnel, was responsible for one administrative function. So we paid you. We didn't decide what you got paid. We just made sure we paid you. So it was a very kind of administrative clerical function. So that's not something that typically gains you any real positive. And the only time you go see HR is when the pay didn't come on time, right? Or if there was a mistake in your paycheck or whatever. So you start with a very administrative function that that didn't help with branding. But the other side of it is so much as we evolved from personnel to more human resources in as late as the 90s was very much a compliance function. It was the no department. These were the people you went to who said you either weren't doing well or here are the policies that you had to follow that stopped you from doing those things that human beings like to do. So you became the no department. As such, between saying you're only administrative clerical anyway, and whenever I do come to you, it's about no or some rule. Uh, When you put those two things together for four or five decades, in the workplace since 1938 or so when the Fair Labor Standards Act was first put in place, then that's a reputation that has been well earned. And it's no necessarily not necessarily a fault of HR, but that's that's the answer. Well, what do you think then makes an excellent human resource leaders today? Right. So obviously it, it, it depends upon the level. So what will make a great CHRO might be very different than, you know, an entry level employee relations person. But at the end of the day, it's the department that tries to get you to yes. This mindset that our role is to be there to enable your people uh, success, workplace success, as opposed to constantly saying no. And we have to be... so. That's the number one thing that we have to do is the whole mindset, the the paradigm shift necessary from I'm here to tell you why you can't do something to I'm going to tell you how we can get what you want done. I preach this to HR professionals. There will be times when the answer is no, but it should be the absolute last sort of line of defense. Like I've done everything I can to work with you, Madam People Manager, uh, to help you figure out how to get what you want achieved. When we change our mindset, and compliance is always an issue, but even then, explaining to people, listen, I'm trying to get you there, but there's this thing called Title VII that says we can't do this. But let me tell you, I have some creative ways. Think about what we do with our tax advisors. You sit down, you know, any tax person can tell you what the IRS tax code says. But then a very creative one sits down and says, let me tell you, this is how I'm going to help you. There are ways to get what you want to achieve. That to achieve what what you're trying to get, however you want to say it differently. But the point is, 
That's what we've got to get to is, yes, there's a compliance world in which we sit. There are all sorts of labor and employment laws and more and more coming every day. But the question is, how can I get you, Madam HR person or Mr. HR person, how can you help me as an HR expert get what I want in this world full of rules. I love that notion of getting getting people to yes. You know, that's that's very powerful. And you know, I, I noticed that you ha- also, in addition to having a, your your other functional leaders, you've you created a chief knowledge officer at Sherm. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, tell us about that. That that's that's uh, building know how is important. I know, big time. So I'm naturally a person trained as a lawyer who believes we need to have facts, evidence to support our positions. One of the challenges for the HR profession is we oftentimes relied on our instinct and what we know is the subjectivity of instinct is all over the place, right? So one of the things that Sherm has actually been doing for a while, but I've doubled down on during my tenure as a CEO, is to find evidence to support the positions that we take. And so we really, we dumped a ton of money into building out a team of PhDs, IO psychologists, statisticians, researchers, so that when we say this is the way something should be, we actually have evidence to support it. Case in point, everyone's jumping on early on. This happened April, May of 2020, right after, you know, we were locked at home. You know, there were employers jumping out saying, the way of the world, the future is going to be remote work. And we said, pause. And they all said, oh, because we see major um, um, efficiency and employees are more productive and everything. And we said, but now let's do the research. Let's ensure that from a knowledge standpoint that we have also measured the downsides. We know that one in four employees by June of last year were reporting burnout, isolation, depression on account of not having human interaction. So maybe the answer isn't everyone works remotely forever. Sure, the CFOs are telling you that you can save a lot of money because we shut these buildings down. I'm not running air conditioning. I'm not buying coffee. I don't have security guards. But there are some other costs associated with it. I wanted our SHRM and our leadership team, specifically our knowledge department, to say we're going to have data and evidence to support both sides of the argument. Decide what you want to do in your shop, but you should have the data. You should have information to make well-informed decisions. And that one, that's part of the role of a society for human resource management. Makes so much sense. You know, and, and I always talk, uh, Johnny, about the fact that the change is never over. And you say, make constant reset your friend. You know, yes. how do you go about doing that? In your head. So, I I tell you something, people joke with me. I move the furniture in my house every six months or so. Just move it around. Periodically, people think I'm nuts, right? (laughs) But it's because one has to get comfortable with change. We are sort of naturally as human beings, again, as much as we say we embrace change, we don't. We, we We get into the rut. I told someone the other day, I have this little practice of mine. I, every periodically, every month or so, I turn off my GPS and I say, let me try to find my way home through a different uh, route. You're a weird guy. You know that, John. I am weird. But, <laughs> but think about it. Let me tell you, it's paid off on occasion when the main thoroughfare has an accident or a shutdown. And while everyone else is just sitting there pissed and turning the car off, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I know there's this third street that does this and this. And circuitously, I get home. It happened just the other day. But my point is between curiosity and embracing change, you've got to exercise your mind to do that. We, we are naturally curious, I think, as human beings, and we can embrace change, but those muscles have atrophied. 
They really have because we don't use them. So I am very intentional about just creating change in my world in small ways so that when big change happens, when there's a change of direction with, for example, who's sitting in the White House, all of the direction at the Department of Labor, the EEOC, OSHA has changed. But if you've not used that muscle and gotten comfortable with it, you're going to really, really struggle. You know, you're, you're such, you know, you, you talk about the need to change and reset. And you're living an example of that, obviously, you know, and you're passionate about innovation. So what, what would be the biggest innovation you've seen recently at SHRM inside your own company? Yes. Yeah, so it would be the biggest. I hate superlatives, but I, but I think the biggest at its core would be we have decided, we have this tagline. I almost wore the shirt today. A tagline that says, we're about policy, not politics. Okay, now you ask yourself, what does the Society for Human Resource Management have anything to do with that? Well, at its core, when I talk about all of the workplace laws that are coming down, we have to impact that. And you can't just show up when the party that you like is in control. So I announced this idea from an innovation perspective that we're going to raise the visibility of our policy work. I also said that what we're going to do is we're not going to be bipartisan. We're going to be nonpartisan. We will take on issues coming out of our, you know, as supported by the data and evidence in our, in our knowledge department that creates it. And we're going to say, this is what we believe. There'll be times when that is, makes the Democrats happy, and there'll be times when it makes the Republicans happy, or sometimes when no one will be happy with our positions. But the biggest innovation that we've done in terms of raising the visibility of the profession is to have a point of view one informed by data when we go to policymakers. So it's just not the HR people who are carrying out rules and laws that are created by government. We're influencing those on the front end so that we make for a better workplace. That is the thing I'm most proud of. If I'm forced to pick one over the other, there are a lot of things I'm proud of. But that was a mindset, and more than a mindset shift, a resource shift. I had to spend a lot of money to do it. And then to we had members who joined us because we were more left or more right. And for Sherm to say we ride right down, it's not even bipartisan. We're going to pick policy, and sometimes you're going to like it, sometimes you're not, but it's really sound policy was a huge shift for us. Well, that, that mindset is uh, is definitely unique in today's divisive world, no question yeah, about especially that. Especially in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and Johnny, I know you uh, agree people, and, 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 and specifically talent, is it's basically everything. You've got to have great talent around you. And, and you talk about the pitfall of a safe hire. Explain. Yes. Yeah. So here we are, and, and uh, there are a whole bunch of reasons that's a pitfall, but the idea that we have that most of us look for the safe hire. We look for the person who has a perfect background, who comes out of central casting for the role, has this number of years. Like, we do that. And what we end up in a lot of situations is, one, we have no diversity. And I don't just mean civil rights diversity, but I also mean civil rights diversity. You get a whole bunch of people who look the same. And that lack of diversity, and including diverse experiences, including someone who's been to jail, for example, you need all of this diversity to, to actually compete in an increasingly diverse workplace, right? So the pitfall, the number one problem, is you just lack diversity when you're looking for the safe hire. You also overlook incredibly, incredibly unique talent. 
Because sometimes the unique talent, the, the most talented people don't look like what we think is the right, perfect, safe candidate. And so, again, we're overlooking incredibly good talent because we are looking for the safe hire. We, we do the checkbox, 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 and then we hire that person, and a lot of people like them. That's at its core the concept of, you know, just the safe hire. And there are major pitfalls. Here's something that I, I remind people increasingly no one's safe anymore. I mean, all of us have something. The internet divulges all of our dirtiest secrets, right? Even if you were 12 and you wrote something, right? And so we've got to get away from that. And that's something that HR professionals have to got to fully embrace as well, is the idea that talent shows up in different places. I'm a big proponent of hiring, and you've seen this in the book, but untapped pools of talent. Going into the market, when we have very low labor participation rates, relatively speaking, you got a third of the population sitting on the sidelines, not working. And it's because we in HR and you people managers are always looking for the safe hire. Yeah. Yeah. What made you an unsafe hire? Oh, my gosh, on so many levels. <laughs> I am a disruptor. The safest hire, if you want to talk about my role right here in Sherm, um, it's a 70, now three-year-old, but when I came in, it was a 70-year-old organization that had done just fine. Numbers are looking good. You've grown. Your bank account is, your balance sheet is great. And so you could have hired someone like that to continue what has gone on for seven decades. Instead, they looked for someone who's very different. Listen, I'm not trained, classically trained as an HR person, right? I come from private sector. I'm not a nonprofit leader in the traditional sense. There are a lot of things about me. I'm pretty, you know, aggressive out there. I'm the guy that says, let's do nonpartisanship. Uh, those are things that the board had to get its arms around because there were safer hires. I would submit to you that we wouldn't be where we are now. We've grown this business significantly. We've grown our our influence significantly. And people like you, CEOs, have said, hmm, Sherm is actually now relevant to me. And 10 years ago, not so much. You know, once you have the talent, Johnny, you, you got to keep it, you know. And yeah. what are the top three things you're doing at Sherm to keep your people? Well, number one that we've all avoided for years, you've got to pay people. Uh, there is a true war for talent. There are real wage inflation issues right now. To ignore them means you're ignoring it. So the number one thing I've done is I've had to go back and say, how do we compete? And not just compete with nonprofits, but how do we compete for talent in the broader market? Now, I understand that I can't compete with companies who can throw a lot of equity, et cetera, but I've had to look at compensation and total rewards. The second thing that we've said is we've got to listen to our employees. Now, let's be clear, and I hope everyone hears me. I listen to my daughter all the time. I have an 11-year-old, but that doesn't mean I do what she says. I'm listening, and I'm listening to truly understand, not listening to check the box. But listening is something we've not done enough of over time. You know, we never thought we had to do it, like you work here or you don't. And so we've said to keep people, they have to know that they are heard. And then, finally, communicate back. So it's pay, it's listening, and it's communicating. That third sort of category of work, which is communicating. Even if I hear you and I decide for X, Y, and Z reasons we're not going to go that way, what we've not done is communicated effectively why. So then people think you're actually not listening and then they leave you. So those are the three things that we, I think, we've really had to focus on. But I'm going to start with pay. And David, you know, we've all heard the line, people don't leave for pay, 
That's ridiculous. Of course they do. And we're seeing it right now in this great the turnover tsunami or the great resignation. People are leaving for significant increases. Wage inflation is real. And you've got to have that top of mind right now or your head is in the sand. I think competitive compensation is basically tab- table stakes. You have to That's have right. that. Okay. Yes. But a lot of research I've seen says people leave for two reasons. One, they don't get along with their boss. And two, they don't yep. feel appreciated. What's your Bingo. perspective on that? Spot on. Number one reason that we know that most people leave is they don't quit their companies. They don't quit their HR department. They quit their people manager. And so this is an area that we have we launched a new product called the PMQ, which is people manager qualification. It's not for HR people. It's for frontline managers because you're why we're losing people. I can recruit people all day. And if you burn through them, I'm just, and you know, from a retail environment where it's not unusual to see 80, 90% turnover. Most of those people left because they experience bad people managers. And you can blame the people managers, but oftentimes we as an organization chose people who weren't necessarily going to be great people managers, and then we didn't equip them with the skills that they needed to be great people managers, right? I'm a great engineer. That doesn't mean I'm going to be a great manager of engineers. I just am a, I'm the best engineer on the team. I'm there the longest. And so I get the job. So people managers, training them, equipping them with the skills to be empathetic, for example, something that you may not naturally be as a human being is a part of it. No question. You're right. Pay is table stakes, but increasingly this idea that because it's table stakes, we don't have to think about it is naive, but people manager, Absolutely. How to manage people is number one. And then this idea that you said they don't feel respected. They don't see feel valued. This gets to culture. And it's the point, maybe you cut to the chase on it, but that's why listening to people and then communicating whatever decisions you come up with is so important. People have to feel like they ultimately are valued, heard, and belong. You know, you're a... Uh a person who said that empathy is not a, a soft skill, you think it's a real business skill. That's right. You know, do you differentiate those two things? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and I think it's because, one, people hear empathy and conflate it with sympathy. That's the number one problem. And sympathy is softer by definition, right? It's, it's you, someone loses a parent or sibling or whatever, and you sympathize with them versus empathizing, this whole concept of every day trying to experience life, not just through your eyes, but through the eyes of the person on the other side of the conversation. It's built into why I think we've had this real diversity problem in our organizations is because we can achieve diversity. We go hire people who are different. By definition, you get diversity, but then we're not looking at them through their diverse experiences and trying to do it through the lens of empathy. As a result, you're bringing them in and they're leaving very quickly. So it is now a business imperative and a knowledge-based economy. David, you don't have the luxury of having people just come and leave. We don't have enough human beings. I remind people that the American birth rate has dropped for the last two decades. In fact, last year during the pandemic, we dropped 4% more, fewer babies being born in this country. And what that means is we're going to have a people problem. There's just a shortage of people. And when you have that, bringing people into an environment that's not particularly empathetic, when they can go get other jobs, means you're going to lose them and thus lose the game. We did some research just recently at Sherm, 93% of employees said they would leave a job that they like 
okay, a job where I'm perfectly fine to go work for a more empathetic organization. So if that doesn't make the case that this empathy is a business imperative and not just a feel-good moral imperative, I don't know what does. Nine out of 10 of your employees are saying, listen, I'll go to the guy across the street if we're in a place where I think people are more empathetic in their approach. Again, not to be confused with sympathy. It's empathy. Yeah, so right. You know, I think there are a lot of people out there like to fire their boss. You know, that's right. You know, you're a, you know, you're a, a black CEO, and and there's there's only five Fortune 500 CEOs. Uh, why so few, in your opinion? Well, oh gosh, now that's a complicated one. But let me tell you, um, part of it is most of us are first generation right? And so you make a lot of mistakes along the way in your career because you don't know. Now, my daughter will have the advantage of a father who's been a CEO in the for-profit space as well as the nonprofit space like a SHRM. I ran a business for IAC as well, and I can help her avoid making some of those mistakes that often derail people on their way to become CEO. I think over time, as we have a black population of more CEOs, and they can then pass down the messages about this, son, don't do that. Even when you're 20 in college, don't do that because that's going to show up when you're 50 and some search firm who's considering you for a CEO is going to say, you know, when you were 20, you said X or Y on social media, which by the way, is the, <laughs> is the nightmare for these kids. So, the short answer is there's no shortage of black Americans who I think God was pretty damn fair and equal, egalitarian, and is giving talent. I think what we've got to do is we haven't had the experiences and people who can help us guide the way so that our careers aren't derailed on our way to the top. Yeah, good point. You know, and Johnny, you're on the President's Advisory Council for uh, Historically Black Colleges, black colleges and Universities. Why, why are they so important today? So uh, let me tell you why they're important to me. The I didn't attend an HBCU. I attended the University of Miami and Drake University, two higher-end majority private schools. But what I know is that the HBCU created the black professional and middle class. So I am a product of the HBCUs, although I never matriculated on an HBCU campus. And so they are as important today as they were historically because they represent a point of pride uh, from the African-American community. It says we can create an institution for us, by us, and actually improve the lot of our community. So they just stand for so much symbolically. And, and I have to ask you, you know, how did the tragic murder of, of George Floyd affect you personally? And what are you doing today differently because of it? So, tough one. Personally, and, and so I want to answer that in the truest sense. I grew up in the South. I was always aware of this. I'm also old enough to have remembered Rodney King. I mean, I can go through the list of names, right? So, and, and this may bother some people, but I'll be honest. It was like, yeah. I got it. They, this is what happens and can happen to you. Um, so personally, to be very transparently, not a lot. I was already uh, fully appreciative of the country that we live in. It's good and it's not so good. I was appreciative of, you know, how I should interact with police officers in a, when I'm a true minority. I grew up in South Florida, but guess what? I went to law school in Iowa. Okay, Iowa, which could not be a whiter place, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so, personally, this, it was like, okay. Now, 
when I broadened personally a little bit more, what did happen to me over the last year is I began, even as an African-American, I want you to follow me. This is a very important and nuanced point. I did not appreciate how much of an impact it had on some of my fellow African-Americans. Do you follow me? So even though I was fine with it, not fine with it, and I want to be clear, of course, it was horrible, it was tragic, it was senseless. I actually grew up in Fort Lauderdale with Benjamin Crump, the lawyer who represents George Floyd and, and therefore his family. And then I had the Floyd brothers, his two brothers, come here to Sherm to talk with my employees about just that. This is their experience. It's not an experience that I had in America. Here you are, three black men on a stage. My experience was very different than their experience. And so it was really an important point for me to even say, even though we appear to have common experiences, we were different even amongst black people. There, there it is, the diversity amongst three black men growing up in America. And so what it did was it, it literally made me more empathetic. Believe it or not, the George Floyd moment, you know, here I am. I've had a very incredibly successful career. God has been good. I have resources. So I don't know what it's like to be a George Floyd. I don't know. And, and, and so I became more empathetic. And his brothers talked about working in warehouses and not being given fair opportunities when they discussed it with my employees here. And I was sitting there saying, wow. I never thought about that. People managers. They talked about some great people managers and some horrible people managers. So that's what it's done. It's actually made me more empathetic. Yeah, that's 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 really a very insightful point. You know, and you mentioned this. This is this is such a complicated subject, but if you're forced to give just three bits of advice to, to leaders on on how to drive diversity and inclusion in their organization, what would it be? Three bits. Love it. Number one, I can judge you by who you hire to lead your, your diversity and inclusion work. Putting someone in there just because they happen to be black or a woman or LGBTQ or whatever, uh, without any real skill at doing it, is tantamount to hiring somebody to be your CFO who doesn't have a background as a CFO. And so I, number one, if you're serious about diversity, equity, and inclusion, then hire someone who has an evidenced background of being able to drive DE&I strategies. That's number one. Number two is you've got to resource it. There's no way that you can say, go do this job, but here's your $25,000 budget to be split amongst community organizations. Check the box. We've done it. You've got to put financial resources against it. And number three, this is a change management initiative. You got, when it comes to specifically the diversity dimension of race, we're 400 years out of slavery. It took a long time for us to get to this point, and it's not going to be overcome or fixed overnight. So this is going to take time. Anyone who decides that they're going to embark upon a real commitment of changing their culture uh, around DE&I means they're going to do this for five, seven years at a minimum. So if, don't think that you're going to see immediate results and that this is all going to be sort of a an initiative that you can check the box on. Those three things, who you put in the job, how you resource it, and then your, your a willingness to be patient while you transform people's hearts and their minds. Uh, using your parlance, it's definitely a, a constant reset. It, you know, yes. and, and Johnny, self-awareness, I know you agree with this. Self-awareness is critical for every leader. How, how do you right. go about self-coaching yourself? And, and what are you working on today to become a better leader? So believe it or not, I have two executive coaches. And listen, I wish I had gotten to you earlier because I would have loved for you to join me. I have two of them. And I split them into two. I have someone who helps me on business strategy. I told you, I'm first generation. 
I don't know how to do this necessarily. I don't want to make all of the mistakes and learn on the chops. So I have a business strategy executive coach. And then I have a leadership coach, someone who helps me understand how to be more empathetic. I, for example, back to this question of diversity, I don't assume that just because I'm black, I'm a diversity expert. I know what my experience is. So I use an executive coach to be the person who steps outside and helps me understand how a person of the LGBT community feels, how someone who's been incarcerated feels. Like I, I need that person to help. You know this more than I know. Uh, these are lonely jobs as a CEO. You actually don't have a lot of people you can turn to. And even if you're in a community of other CEOs, they're all swamped and stressed too. So <laughs> what do we do? All get together and, and drink ourselves out of these roles, right? But, but seriously, so I've used two executive coaches in my case to keep, my, my, keep me, my head in the game. That's number one. What am I personally, personally working on? One, it is empathy. And I say that because I'm not, I haven't always been. I'm a very hard driving business leader. And, you know, I'm the guy who said to someone, and I, I, now I can reflect on it, and we all are hopefully better today than we were yesterday, but I told someone who, a woman years ago, a lawyer on my team was telling me about the challenges she was having at home because she was trying to be a mother and a, a lawyer and da-da-da, and I said, listen, you and your husband decide to have children, not me. Like, now I look back and say, I can't believe I said that to someone, but I did, and I meant it. My true self is like, I've got to balance my life. You got to figure out how to balance yours. But that was so 80s, 1980s, right, of a management philosophy. And so, but I will, literally, that's still a part of how I think because I'm so like the guy who has to solve his own problems. Like you can sit here and tell me your problems all day, but Johnny, you've got to solve your, your own problems. So as a result, I am working on being more empathetic and trying to understand how not to be so hard driving and so absolute. That's a big effort for me. People see this guy who's you know lovely and he loves people and I do love people, but I also believe very strongly in sort of personal accountability and figuring out your own problems. I don't, but that's how I'm biased. So I use, I'm working on that. You know, I think that that kind of transparency is very motivational and unique and inspiring to your people. So good for, good yeah. for you for being so open on it. You know, this Thank is so you. much fun, Johnny, and I, I, I've enjoyed this conversation. I want to have a little bit more with you with the uh, uh, lightning round of Q&A. Have some fun with it here. What, what three words best describe you? Demanding, funny, and capitalist. <laughs> if you could be one person besides yourself, who would it be? And, and why? Oh, gosh. Um, gosh, that's a tough one. I would want to be Oprah Winfrey. And it's because she literally has made herself a household name and, and just been incredibly successful despite the odds. What's your biggest pet peeve? Um, lazy people. What's something about you that few people would know? As a young man, I was on Wheel of Fortune, and I won Teen Week. I was the winner of the week on Wheel of Fortune when I was 13 years old, 14 years old. Do you have any hidden talents? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've written a very insightful business book with Reset. What's your favorite business book? Um, good to great. Uh, the the most, most exciting thing you have to look forward to? 
um, hopefully, this book's selling, and I make one of the big lists, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal lists. <laughs> good, well, good luck. You know, uh, two more questions for you. First, uh, what are the three traits you see in the most successful leader? Empathy, um, curiosity, I mean, true curiosity, and um, how do I describe it? Um, in, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but incredibly competitive. Now, the, the, that's a good one. You know, and, and uh, I got two more questions. I'm going to ask you two yes. more. Okay, real quick. What's your favorite interview question? Had to ask you that one for goodness sake. My favorite interview question is, um, what are you bad at? And why do you ask that? Because it, it, it goes to something we, we mentioned a little earlier. People who are great at everything, they lack self-awareness. Anyone who can truly answer, what are you not so good at um, or bad at, outright bad, so just not moderately good, like I'm not good at this, it has a, a real good, uh, I believe it's an indicator of their self-awareness. And lastly, you know, I understand that you're a uh, single parent father. Uh, yes. You know, how do you balance all that comes with that? Um, you just do it. You wake up every day. My parents divorced, as I mentioned earlier. I have three siblings, and my mother raised three children with far fewer resources than I have. So I just wake up every day, put one foot in the front of the other. My number one job in the world is to be a great daddy to that 11-year-old girl. That's bigger than Sherm. It's bigger than being a son or anything else. It's number one. And so every day I just wake up and my guiding, my, that's my contribution to this world. People will forget how much money I had, what my titles were, et cetera, but they're going to remember. They'll look at me uh, and judge me based upon how that little girl grows up. Uh, you, you know, Johnny, you're a terrific guy. Uh, congratulations on your new book. It's, it's pretty thank clear you. why you're the CEO of this uh, huge organization. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. Have a great weekend. Well, I knew I was going to enjoy that conversation because I just love talking about people and the importance of people and the importance they have in every organization. Now, if you work with people, there was so much to learn from Johnny about hiring, about retention, about how to come into an organization that's maybe a little sleepy and then really drive some big time change. But I got to admit, there was one moment that really shocked me. And that was when Johnny shared that a whopping 93% of people would leave a job that they actually like to work at a more empathetic organization. That tells you just how important empathy is. We have to actively develop empathy and look for ways to see situations through our employees' eyes. We can't afford to overlook it. And hey, because you're listening today, you won't, especially with this quick bit of coaching. This week, as a part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to come up with the one initiative that will make your organization more empathetic to your employees. Johnny had some great ideas that they're using at Sherm to help their members' organizations develop empathy. For example, you can coach your HR department to find ways to get to yes instead of just blindly following a compliance handbook. Or you can work towards what Johnny calls a challenge culture that helps employees feel safe speaking up about what's not working. Both of those ideas are driven by empathy, by understanding the situation from our employees' perspectives and really responding to their feedback. 
I bet you've got some ideas of your own too. When we can see empathy as a business skill that we can develop, then we can tap into all kinds of creative ways to grow stronger and more loyal teams. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders treat empathy as a business skill. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.